Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. A number of years back, uh, there was a band um, that came out with a song called If I Had a Million Dollars. Anybody know it? Good song. Uh, good song. And it was really deep. The whole song, the whole song is spent dreaming about what I would do, what life would be like if somehow I had a million dollars. I'd buy a house. I'd buy a furniture for that house. I'd buy a fur coat, but not a real one. That'd be cruel. We wouldn't have to eat craft dinner, but we would. We'd just eat a lot more. I'd buy some art. I'd buy a monkey. Really deep stuff. And it ends profoundly singing, if I had a million dollars, I'd be rich. I love, I love um, philosophical music, the way that it can get in. We dream, right? You guys ever had that dream? What would I do with a million dollars? What would I do? But one, one thing that's good to question once in a while is what is behind our dreams? Not just, what would I do with a million dollars, but what's driving my wants? What's driving the desires that I have? And at what point, could there be a point, yes, and at what point would it be that our dreams actually come uh, from somewhere dark, or they would lead us towards somewhere dark? So today we're wrapping up uh, this series that we've been in through the summer on the parables of Jesus. And it's been our prayer, it's been our desire to say, Jesus, we want to learn from you this summer. We want to sit at your feet, we want to listen to the stories that you told, uh, because you told them with intent, you told them with a purpose, that we would see more of your character, that we would see more of who we are, that we would be encouraged, that we would be given peace, that we would be challenged and kicked in the rear at times, so that, so that, we could know God and follow him and know that he knows us and loves us and wants us to follow him. Next week, we're going to dive into our first series, or our first week of uh, the series that we're calling A Far Country. And um, I'll let you in on this. Some of you will really appreciate this. For some of you, this will be like, a oh, I don't know if I want to do this. The sermon series are kind of planned out from next week all the way through January. And it's kind of a three-step movement. So we're going to be talking about next week we jump into a series called The Far Country. Um, And it's all about uh, how this world is not our true home. That we end up content to settle. And God always is pushing us to set our sights on Him. To set our sights on where He's leading us to our true home. That we want to spend... um, we want to spend a number of weeks looking at uh, examples in the Bible of people who got it, of people who said, I want to keep my sights set on my true home. That's far country, that we are citizens of a far country. We're going to move then into mission. If our true home is somewhere else, and yet God has us here now, what are we to do? Where would he send us? And we have been praying for a while at DR that God would give us a mission that we could impact our community. And so we're going to spend four weeks talking about uh, what mission is, what goes into it. We're going to talk about, we're going to hit home in some ways and talk about problems that have been going on for a long, long time and then maybe what is coming 
um, and how we can go on mission. And then and we're going to talk about far country and our citizenship in a different home. We're going to talk about mission and what we are to do here and now. And then we're going to move into a series called Power. That's all about the Holy Spirit. Not a heady, intellectual, um, use big words and sound really smart, but a very practical, who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do in my life? How can I access him? Jesus talked about the one who was to come and the one who would indwell us. What does it mean that God is not just here, but he's in? And uh, what does that mean for the life I live? What does that mean for my ability to set my sights on a far country? What does it mean for our ability to do mission? Is this just of our own power or does it come from somewhere else? And all of these kind of interweave together. We can't set our sights on a far country uh, and lose the mission here. And we can't do it just in our own power. And so we're going to be kind of dancing among these three different ideas uh, all the way through January. If that invigorates you, um, then, uh, then join me in that. If it doesn't, then give it a chance. I think it'll be fresh as we walk through it. Today, we're going to wrap up our parables um, and this last one, I think, punches. This one, it, it punches me. Uh, so I'm, I'm hoping it does you as well, that I'm not the only one beat up. Uh, we're going to jump into Luke 12. Read it and pray, and then we want to unpack it. Luke 12, starting in verse 13, said, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Let's pray. Father, I pray for a spirit of humility right now. I pray that you would be working in us and opening us up rather than um, putting up our defenses you would allow us um, to be safe in you, to be encouraged by you, to be given courage by you, and to be challenged by you. If there are things about the way that we're living that do not line up with you and your heart, would you be gracious and show those to us? And would you help us um, to change and to come to you? Jesus, we love you. We pray in your name. Amen. So a little bit of context. 
Um, Jesus is talking right now to both the crowds and the disciples. If you want to have a really quick breakdown of the time that Jesus spent on earth, uh, you can look in three different directions. Jesus, you will see him often spending time with the Father. He'll go alone and he'll pray and he'll have solitary time and he'll spend time just with the Father to quiet himself. He'll, he also has a group of people that are called his disciples. Um, and that's a layered group. There are disciples, that, which means uh, the people who are following Jesus. And it goes all the way to a core of the 12 uh, that became the apostles. And even within the apostles, there are three that are the closest with Jesus. So he spends time with the Father, he spends time with his disciples, and then he also spends time with the crowds. And it's interesting just to look through and to say, okay, who is he talking to now? What does that conversation look like? Because it changes often. Right now, Jesus is talking to both the crowds and to his disciples. And he has been talking about persecution. He has been talking about what happens when I'm following God and stuff happens because of my faith. What do I do? And it seems like he's interrupted. A man comes in and he says, um, thanks, I have a question. Actually, not a question. I really want you on my side. Will you tell my brother to divide the inheritance? Have you, ever had an op- or have you ever had an experience where you're in a conversation and somebody comes in and completely changes the tone of the conversation or maybe even what you're talking about? This, it seems like this is what's going on. I think Jesus has maybe an opportunity right now to say, um, wait, maybe I'll talk to you later. But Jesus has the ability to kind of say, let's deal with this. And he says, you, just, you want me on your side. And I'm not going to play that part because there's something deeper going on. The issue is not the issue that you're bringing up. The issue is what's going on in you that makes you want to bring this up. What the man wants is his his inheritance. And Jesus says, uh, let's get at the real thing. And so in verse 15, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. He says, getting more won't fix your life. Getting more won't satisfy you. Life isn't found in stuff. I ran across across this uh, quote from Mark Twain this week. He uh, he once defined or defined civilization as a limitless multiplication of unnecessary necessities. A limitless multiplication of unnecessary necessities. That means there is never enough. There's always the next thing that's coming at us. And commercials and manufacturers and companies will inundate us. They will flood us with the next thing that we need in our life. The term necessaries has become a thing. Like it's not just something you add on. It's something you had better add on. You need that thing. And I love, I love what Twain said about it. The list of things that we need is ever-growing. And this is a conversation you can have with kids to say, well, what is it that you need and what is it that you want, right? And why? 
when we think it will fill our life, we're wrong. And this is where this man is. So Jesus offers a parable. So he tells him the parable. He says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger, uh, larger ones, and there I will store my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you ever have conversations with yourself like this? Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will, is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So here is the breakdown. This guy is smart and lucky. His fields produce a bumper crop so much that he can't fit it in his current storage sheds. And so he says, I'm going to build those down so that I have a place to put it. Evidently, he's got enough money where he can tear down his buildings and build larger ones without actually selling the crop that he's currently produced to pay for it, right? So he's got money in the bank. He can tear it down. He can build new ones. And then he can put this new income opportunity right in there. Now, knowing Jesus' audience, they weren't often wealthy. So hearing a story of a man who could just, you know, do this could have stirred something in them. Is it a bad plan? No. It's actually a good plan. He's figuring out what to do with the resources that have come to him. Right? I've got all this stuff. My storage isn't big enough for it. I've got to do something, so I'm making a plan to do it. It's not a bad plan, and Jesus doesn't attack the plan. He attacks the motivation behind the plan. Verse 19, the man says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So who is he thinking about him? Himself. And who else? No one. Himself only. If you came into wealth, if you had a million dollars, what have you dreamed of doing with it? When I was a kid, uh, you guys know what garbage pail kids are? Anybody get into those? I looked them up last night. They are. I don't see the attraction right now. Um, some of the grosser things ever invented. Uh, and I'm sorry if you go look them up now after this. But I remember uh, going through penny jars to buy a 25-cent pack of them. And I rem actually, one time, I remember counting out 100 pennies and giving them to an older neighbor girl so that she could walk across the busy street to the shop to buy me four packs with the stale gum and a few cards of these garbage pail kids and bring them back and open them up and see which ones were new or see which ones were duplicates that I already had. But I loved them. One day, one day, I was riding my bike down the street and there was a little hole in the road, and I just happened to look down in uh, the hole, and there was a $10 bill. And I was like, garbage bill, kids! <laughs> you know what I'm doing with this? I can buy so many of these. When we come into riches, because I was rich that day, when we come into riches, how do we dream? 
I know I, as a kid, and I'm not sure I've grown out of it, I dream of me. Do you? Why am I like this? Why, why do we think of ourselves first? And maybe not even first. Why do we think ourselves, of ourselves exclusively? I'm rich. This goes to me. For some people, anxiety is a real thing. I worry that I won't have enough. And so I'm... I'm going to take what's given to me so that I can cover my bases. And that's a real thing. Jesus actually, right after this parable, goes into a wonderful uh, teaching on anxiety and trust in God and saying, take, let God take care of you. And don't worry. Put your trust in him. But before he gets there, he has something else to attack. So some people have a real issue with anxiety, and it's a real deal. I'm not sure if anxiety is my deal. I think my deal is greed. I think my deal is an unsatiable hunger for more. I want and I want and I want and it changes the way I see the world. I have this tendency to grasp and to hold really tight and to reach for more. And it's here that I have to be careful. And if you struggle with the grasp, then you have to be careful too. I found this quote this week and it, it punched me in the gut. Uh, it says, people say that money does not satisfy, but it does satisfy if you want to live on that level. People who are satisfied only with the things that money can buy are in great danger of losing the things that money cannot buy. If you are content for what money can offer, then money can satisfy you. But know that in the process, you will lose a lot. You will lose a lot that money cannot touch. Money doesn't fix my life. So what's the biggest example of this that we could find? I think it might be the lottery. Right? I think it might be the lottery. My math teacher in high school called the lottery the tax on people who can't do math, which sounds like a math teacher, right? Uh, the, every, somebody has to win, but the chances of winning are so minute that it is um, mathematically zero or close right there. And so he just said, if you think you got a chance at winning the lottery, it's a tax on you. And I'm, I'm fine if you pay the tax and I don't have to. But somebody wins. Somebody wins. Only the stories that have been written by the people who have won the lottery are not Disneyland. Over and over and over and over, it's been written how winning the lottery has destroyed people's lives. First, because if you're hard-pressed for money and reaching for money, the likelihood that if when you get that money, that you'll be able to use it well is pretty small. And so scores of people have won the lottery and have been bankrupt within, year, within a few years. They spend the whole thing because it's like $10 worth of garbage pail kids, only on a much bigger scale. 
They spend it all, and they find themselves worse than when they started. But it can get worse, too. People get caught up in gambling. People get caught up in drug addictions. Because the more money you have, the more trouble you can get into. The more trouble you can afford. Divorce has ripped families apart. Bankruptcy. People have attempted and committed suicide. One winner was robbed of $545,000 from his car while he sat at a strip club. Eight months after winning, and he said, I just don't like me. I don't like the hard heart I've got. I don't like what I've become. People are looking to money to fulfill them. And the reality is that greed steals their life. If you're into Lord of the Rings, Gollum or Smeagol is this perfect illustration of clinging to something that it, it distorts you into a gross disfiguration of the life you once had. It's been said that power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. But I wonder if maybe power just reveals and amplifies what's already going on inside us. Because God is powerful, and yet not corrupt. And so I don't know that power by itself is the issue. When I am given much, what is my response? Thank you. Thank you. I will use this on me. Or, thank you. I will look to be generous. I will look for ways to give Give this away to help people. The man in the parable planned to sit back and coast through the rest of his life on his earnings. Did he have a right as an American citizen to enjoy the fruit of his labor? Yes, but we're not talking about rights. He has a much bigger problem going on inside than the rights that are afforded to him. What's his problem is the first one is that he never saw beyond himself. His error comes in how he views what has become his. Five times in verse 17 through 19. This is uh, the biggest example in a parable that Jesus uses of uh, somebody saying the word I. And he's talking about what is mine. He uses words like, uh, my fruit, my barn, my goods, my soul. Everything of his attention is focused on himself. He feels no concern or responsibility for anybody else. The essence of greed is keeping what resources God brings for yourself. And this attitude is the polar opposite of Christianity. This attitude is the polar opposite of what Jesus offers. Jesus calls us to deny ourselves. Jesus calls us to pick up our cross, to follow him, to actually consider our life here like dead. We are walking dead people to pick up our cross. It is a pointed statement, and we kind of glance over it because we hear it so often. To consider my life as it's not worth anything. I'm, I'm giving the whole thing away now. 
But God doesn't call us to do that. God doesn't call us to be generous so that he can suck the joy out of life. So that he could just be hard on us. So that he could just demand and demand and demand and demand. And we end up just exasperated. We are called. We are called to be generous because God is generous. We are called to be generous because we serve a Savior who sacrificed everything. And then he said, follow me. God stands with open arms waiting to give you the riches of the kingdom. But it's not like the riches of the world. It doesn't necessarily line up that way. The Romans had a proverb which said that money was like salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier you become. Jesus is the only thing that truly satisfies And once we realize this, then we get free to give. And we are called to give. This man thought only of himself. But then his second problem was he never saw beyond this world. He kind of lived with the mindset that this world is all there is. And if I'm set for the rest of this life, then I'm just going to enjoy it. I'm going to sit back and I'm going to coast. He made his plans on the basis of his life here. Did I tell you that I'm excited about the next series? About fixing our eyes on our true home? That this world is not our true home. But we we look to a far country. This man had no such vision. William Barclay, commentator, writes, there's a story of a conversation between an ambitious youth and an older man who knew life. I love that description. An older man who knew life. Said the young man, I will learn my trade. And then, said the older man, I will set up my business. And then, I will make a fortune. And then, I I suppose that I shall grow old and retire and live on my money. And then, Well, I suppose that one day I will die. And then? Because you can't take it with you. You can't take stuff with you. It doesn't last. He who dies with the the most toys still dies. Right? The parable ends with the man dying that night. And all the wealth that he had stored up for himself, he doesn't get to enjoy. And Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So here's the question. How are you doing with greed? How are you doing with generosity? I had an awesome conversation with someone recently. And I asked the question, this is... I. This question was asked of me, and I think it's a fabulous question to ask people if you really want to uh, get in. What about you is worthy of imitation? That's a hard question, right, to answer? And if somebody like goes off like, oh, I've been waiting for someone to ask, <laughs> then maybe it's an opportunity for a quick conversation and then get out. Okay? But sometimes people are taken back by that to say, is that a trick question? Are you really... Are you really asking that? Or if I give you an answer, are you going to talk to me about humility? (laughs) 
what about your life is worthy of imitation? What could you pass on by the way that you live? And his answer, I love his answer. He said, I try really hard to be generous. I, I grew up watching my dad be generous. I just want to be like my dad. Maybe that's bad motivation. Maybe I should be doing it for God. But I grew up watching my dad be generous, and I work really hard to share what I have to help other people. I love that. I love that. So how are you doing with generosity? How do you use what God has given you? Do you seek to pile it up for yourself? Or is generosity your habit? Does compassion take a back seat to your personal desires? I think we need self-examination. And if we're passing the test, it's reason to celebrate. I just think more often in not, especially in America, where we live, uh, generosity is not the rule. Generosity is the exception. And in the church also, it affects us. Uh, the, the illness of greed uh, is, not, is not held back at the doors of the church. We are susceptible to it. How do I feel about what God, what God has given to me? And is it mine or am I a steward of what has come my way? Am I generous? Do I take what God has given for me and store it up for my own purpose? Do I seek to grab what others have? When I look at money, do I only see what I don't have? Or do I look to what I have for ways to give? And one of the tests, I think, is really, how are you giving? Generosity is also a discipline toward the cure. If you want to break your grasp on greed, give. And I don't think that is something that says, when you get to this income, then begin. I think it's, if you, if you struggle with greed, where you are, then give where you are. Let God, let God pry open your hands and say, God, what, what can I give? How can you help me develop a generous heart? This is not a shame and condemnation kind of message. This is, if you struggle with this, let Jesus free you. And generosity is not just a goal, it's also a cure. As an example of this, this last week, I got to see the faces of the staff over at Wright Middle School as I dropped off 180 binders. They asked for 50, okay? They asked for 50, and we came out and did 180. And she said, oh my goodness, we aim for 250 for the whole year. And you know the conversation in my head at that point? That's only 70 more. Like, let's, let's fill that. And I actually asked, I said, okay, so... Um, can we just bring in 70? And she's like, actually, our storage is full. Uh, could you ask us again in January? Is it okay if we do that? 
I'd love that, to see their faces. And an example of how Damascus Road uh, is stretching ourselves to be generous, to bless people and to give. That's an example of being, uh, I would say, responsively generous. You are presented with a need and you say game on, right? There's a different kind of generosity that I might call proactive generosity that doesn't wait for uh, opportunities to present themselves, but goes out looking and says, I want to give and I want God to open my eyes to the needs around me. I want to be regular in how I give. Not just, not just um, for sexy opportunities. Like, hey, there's a need. I can do it. This will be a fun party. But in a regular kind of disciplined way, I can beat that greed by forcing myself to give on a consistent basis. It helps. It works. It's hard. But we're called into this together. Jesus said that he came so that we might have abundant life. And the truth is, the love of money can steal that life away. So let's learn to let go. May we be people who recognize the crazy generosity of Jesus. May we be people who do not think only of ourselves, but we beat back greed by giving. And may we be people who hold valuable the stuff that really matters, recognizing that there's more to this life than just this life. We're going to move into a time of communion and prayer. And I love communion is an opportunity to reflect on the generosity of God. Communion is an opportunity to reflect on the generosity and the sacrifice of God. Who would not stop until everything was paid for? That your debt has been stamped paid in full by what Jesus did and how he offered his life. So when you come up and you, uh, you take the representation of the bread that Jesus broke at his last dinner, when he's talking with the disciples and they're sharing a meal and he says, this is just like my body that was given for you. And you take the cup. Jesus held up the cup and he says, this cup represents the blood, the new covenant, the new life that I want to pour into you. And you take those and eat those and drink those. It's an opportunity to reflect on how he was broken so that we could have life, how he gave so that we could receive, and now out of that so that we can give as well. Also, I'll tell you, uh, there are some chairs again turned backwards, um, back over here. And if you are interested, if you want to pray with somebody to say, um, man, greed is a thing in my life, or I've got something else going on that I'd, I just need to be able to talk and get off my chest and pray with somebody, then uh, there will be people back there who can meet you and talk with you and pray with you. Um, 
But let's move into a time of response, of communion and prayer and worship to say, God, God, could we imitate your generosity? Let's pray. Father, your generosity is overwhelming. And I think about the great cost for us to have a relationship with you again. That our sin separated you, separated us from you. That you leapt across the chasm to bring us home, to bring us to our true home. Father, would you open us up so that we can receive from you that life, recognize that we make a mess, that our sins are so gross, that you offer life instead of death. And would you give us a vision for generosity? Would you help us to see you that way? And would you do something in our hearts to peel back the grasp so that we can live full and give away? Jesus, we love you. We're thankful for you. We want to worship you. Amen.